Hello, and thank you for listening to Renewables, a podcast by Biostar, which aims to explore the current and future energy landscape in America. Hello, and welcome back to Renewables. I'm your host, David Smart, Chief Commercial Officer at Biostar Renewables, and very pleased to have with me today Tucker Perkins, the President and CEO of the Propane Education and Research Council. We're going to be talking renewable propane today. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Tucker. It's been a pleasure to meet you. Tell our listeners and viewers a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. So, David, it's nice to be with you. Kind of love listening to your podcast and hope hopefully we'll educate a little bit today about kind of where we're going with uh, renewable zero carbon, negative carbon, sometimes renewable propane. Um. Kind of, I am the CEO of this organization that most people haven't really heard of unless you're in the propane industry, Propane Education and Research Council. We'll shorten that for the rest of this talk to PERC. Um, and we're really what we do, we're kind of three things, if you will. First, we're all about safety and training for people who use propane, whether it's uh, people who sell it or install things or people who use it, right? We're the place you would come to learn more about being safe and being well-trained. We also in charge with talking about propane where, you know, we help people understand how to use it at home, working on the farm or whatever. But really the third piece that we do that's so important is we really are forward thinking about what does the industry need to be successful next week, next year, a decade from now. And, you know, it's odd, I guess everybody could say this, you know, my part of the career to get to this point. I don't think I would have ever said this is what I'd be doing 20 years ago, yet everything I did kind of ran up to be ready for this job. So I'm a, I'm an engineer by undergrad training, did get a master's in business along the way, but I've really worked in the propane industry, the natural gas industry, the LNG industry, um, in the manufacturing industry a little bit, manufacturing uh, auto gas systems to make vehicles run on something a little cleaner than diesel or gasoline. And you know, now I sit at the head of this organization that we invest, I don't know, any one year, maybe $50 million in training or technology. We've got partnerships that are so exciting with Ford and GM and John Deere and uh, Cummins and Renai Water Heaters and every other brand you might think of. But I would tell you, I mean, I'm just fresh out of about 10 days of meetings We've probably invested more time and energy in renewable fuels in the last six months than we probably did in the previous four years. So it's a it's a great story involving in front of us as we all chase a real true path to zero carbon. Yeah, it's a such an interesting industry and, and growing so quickly. Um, you know, we're in the RNG space, so certainly know enough to be dangerous, but wasn't as familiar uh, until really meeting you with renewable propane. So I'm excited to dig into that today. Um, and you mentioned some some you know big companies that our listeners and viewers, whether you're into the industry or not, will know. And I think that's really important too. Um, we'll start here in a minute talking about you know kind of the some of the benefits and the applications and everything like that. But first, you're no stranger to podcasts. Uh, and, and you're no stranger to talking about these important topics. Your podcast is called Path to Zero. I've listened to the, some of the episodes and, and they're fantastic. What led you to start this podcast? 
Well, what led us to start the podcast is I think we really wanted to see a more honest conversation. Sometimes pro-low carbon fuels like propane and natural gas, and sometimes just really talking about the other views, right? Where the podcast truly is about a conversation about how do we get to path to zero? How do we afford that path? What's the timing of that path? Um, that, that whole broader conversation. So, you know, we've had climate scientists, we've had uh, all kinds of nuclear fission, fusion, every kind of renewable fuel you can think of, solar, wind, uh, a lot of power experts. Some of my favorites, we really talk about those softer subjects like energy equity or environmental justice. But it really is a forum to have an honest exchange about this. I, I don't use, I don't talk much about an energy transition. I think this what we're in is too rough and bumpy to be a transition. I tend to refer to it as a transformation because um, literally people will win, people will lose. Um, and so, but it's a, it's a forum for an honest conversation. Uh, and it really has been a fascinating journey. For me, it's been a place to really rub uh, shoulders and elbows with specialists and experts in their field and, the, and to really draw out of them their views as we talk about the future. It's an interesting point you make, and I, I really appreciate that perspective. Uh, as a guy who probably spends too much time, you know, watching CNBC behind me, uh, there's they're talking a lot right now. The Fed is talking a lot about a soft landing. I'm not sure that with respect to the energy transition, there really will be a soft landing. And it, what you said there kind of made me think of that. So appreciate that perspective. We're going to dig into all that more here in a few minutes. But first, just talk a little bit. You know, I think most of our listeners and viewers are somewhat familiar with what propane is and how to use it and how it applies to the consumer and perhaps even larger, you know, industrial type operations. But just talk a little bit about some of the benefits of propane uh, and the applications about propane of for propane that maybe we don't hear as much as about. Yeah, I mean, and you started off by talking about renewable natural gas. I think, you know, people talk about fossil fuels are evil and fossil fuels have to go. I'm always quick to say fossil fuels are not binary. They're not all good and bad, right? I think coal, oil, and wood are dirty and pretty bad, if you want to use that. And electricity that comes from coal, oil, and wood is probably even worse, right? Natural gas and propane are kind of blessed by chemistry. And at some level, propane is the natural extension of natural gas's market where pipelines are not easily done, right? Propane is easily stored, easily transported. And, and that's the role we've played. And I think people forget sometimes we might be about 3% of the energy mix in the U.S. and frankly, about 3% of the energy mix in the world in the U.S. You know, we touch any one time 60 to 75% of the population. Worldwide, we're comfortable we touch 60% of the population. because, And we're doing it with cooking, home heat, hot water, so many agricultural uses, grain drying, animal heat. Now we moved into powering engines, whether those engines are pumping water or providing electricity, uh, and and really a host of material handling issues, forklifts. Now we talk, we begin to talk about microgrids and industrial systems. We've really broadened our portfolio of things we do around the world. Today, we're powering ships. Ten years ago, I actually sat in a group and we talked about 
should we engage in marine engine propulsion? And I thought we should, but even even as a proponent then, I'm shocked at what we're doing today. I mean, the world is searching for cleaner fuels, frankly, alternatives to diesel in many cases. And propane provides a wonderful solution. Never as economical or rarely as economical as natural gas. Natural gas has this great distribution network. But, you know, as we all change, we've become very competitive with natural gas. And I think to a degree we've been competitors over the years. And now I think we're natural partners as we begin to forge uh, the story around low-carbon fuels. By the way, low-carbon conventional fuels. We're going to have to go to low-carbon renewable fuels to have that conversation. But we're in 5 million homes, 50 million homes, think of us, because they have a gas grill. 5 million homes rely on us for primary heat. Another 7 million homes have propane in the home. Almost every farm has it. So well-versed across this country. So 50 million homes, and that's what, of course, I think most people, when they think propane, they think about a gas grill and the little propane tanks they take to get refilled. You mentioned powering ships, which is something that you and I had not discussed before that I think is fascinating. Expand on that a little bit and and other applications, um, you know, besides in our backyard or in our home uh, that our listeners and viewers may not be as familiar with. Well, I think if you're a propane insider and when you talk about propane and people look at you blankly and then eventually we say, oh, that's the fuel that powers my grill, right? That's that's a little bit, I don't know if it's offensive, but propane has been so important in the development of the nation's, you know, system of commerce. So the, the three markets that I would say beyond just traditional residential or even traditional commercial Power generation, for sure, right? First, and just backup power generation, residential, commercial. But through microgrids, really really into now, we're doing some systems where we are the primary provider of energy for huge industrial facilities, right? Gives them grid stability, reliability, and frankly, quite affordable as we convert the energy in propane to an electric kilowatt. So it's really around power gen. Secondly, it's around transportation. Just diesel, on my podcast, I often talk about, let's make this diesel's last decade. I think the EPA is probably gonna do that for us. You know, there's now clarity around what 2027 looks like. And as we think even a little bit past 2027, diesel has difficulty meeting those emissions regulations. Propane is a natural fit to get into transportation. And not so much light duty. We don't really labor around what you or I drive in our cars to and from the grocery store. We're really talking about medium duty and ultimately heavy duty transportation. People that are trying to drive 33,000 pounds vehicles, 500 miles a day, seven days a week, that kind of thing. So transportation is a big piece. And then lastly, material handling, really more off-road. But if you really knew what we're doing in the ports, both inland and marine, to replace diesel in big gantry cranes, reach stacking, that equipment, e- even the uh, drayage trucks that move the containers in and around ports, we view that as the natural market for propane. And so those are the three big buckets. I think in the future, everyone will recognize that we're really proud to say the port of Newark 
not New York, the port of Newark, just across the water there, they've said they're going to standardize on propane-powered terminal tractors, um, cleaner than diesel, and it's just not in a position where they're ready for battery electric or hydrogen yet. And, you know, we'll start talking about renewable fuels, but even as we think, I've been in California the last two weeks, headed there again next week, and we'll be back the following week, as we really are talking there about these modern engines matched up to renewable fuels and really making the point quantitatively as as well as qualitatively, it's probably better for the environment than using electricity today. It's certainly better for the users and better for anybody who has to pay the ultimate cost. But we really make a great value proposition, not only for the earth or for our health, but for the end users. So you mentioned microgrids a couple of times. I think probably 50, 60, maybe 70% of our uh, listeners and viewers probably know what a microgrid is. They're in the energy space one way or the other. But for those other 30 or 40% who may not be as familiar or haven't listened to our previous episodes, and if you haven't, please go back and give them a listen. Tell our listeners and viewers what a microgrid is and how renewable propane or, or propane fits into that. That uh, Well, I think the simplest and easiest definition for a microgrid is that it's this self-contained power system, right? Usually limited in size and certainly limited in geography. So it could serve a community. It could serve one subdivision. It could serve one business, one industrial park. That's the classic. It may be tied to the grid. It may be independent of the grid, but you know, I think one of the first projects we did is such an easy way to explain it. Truckee, California, right outside of Lake Tahoe, subject to wildfires there quite often. So the utility, the local utility installed a propane powered microgrid. They almost always work in, with multiple fuels. Most of the ones we do are solar and propane. Some are solar wind and propane. But when the conditions are right for fire danger. So when the conditions are so right, the utility says, I don't really want to have energized lines across my whole community. They turn off the mains and energize the microgrid. And the microgrid carries literally most of Truckee, California. And then when the wildfire conditions have settled down, the microgrid is shut down, the main system comes back on. You know, as we get a little bit more sophisticated now, residential developments and industrial parks and municipalities may use microgrids to support a peak, to shave a peak, to provide a base load. Um, and, you know, they, they can range from very simple to really sophisticated. Um, but that's really, they're these independent, if you will, power systems that come and go as needed. Perfect. Yeah, that's a great, great explanation. And thank you for that. And it's amazing to see, uh, you know, what events, catastrophic events like California wildfires have done to really accelerate the adoption of microgrids uh, beyond kind of, you know, single use industrial or, or commercial applications. So that's a neat uh, case study in Truckee, California. And uh, I'll, I'll have to Google around it to read more about that because that's really interesting to me. So let's shift focus to renewable propane. That's really what we're here to talk about. First, let's just start high level. How do you make it? 
Well, we, we look to make it from something that's a waste product, a byproduct, something that really isn't being used for anything else. And if you'd asked me that question a year ago, I would say we make it. Uh, and by the way, a lot of the processes differ from renewable natural gas, right? It's interesting for those two fuels, but we're really tending to make liquid fuels. So today we do it by hydro treating, and I can back up if we need to, but bombarding used cooking oil or fats or oils. Um, so think of used, used cooking oil as the most perfect scenario. We hydro treat it, bombard it with hydrogen. And really what we do is liberate uh, what we want out of that triglyceride and we can create renewable diesel. We can create sustainable aviation fuel or we can create renewable propane. And generally today, most of, most of these facilities are bringing in these used cooking oils or animal fats, uh, things that are just not really good for anything else. And most facilities will either make renewable diesel and renewable propane or sustainable aviation fuel and renewable propane. They tend to be co-products right now. Okay, interesting. And you talk about pathways and um, uh, talk about what is a pathway? Explain to our listeners and viewers what a pathway is. And it's exciting. So a pathway is really how we get from a feedstock. So maybe in that particular case, it was fats and oils. How do we get from the feedstock to the finished good? And in my, my world, I'm usually looking to make renewable propane. But so it's the feedstock, the process, and then the ultimate uh, product, for my case, renewable propane. And I can't think you and I've talked enough. I'll, I'll even go a little bit where you're going. A year ago, we were almost only focused on the pathway we just talked about. Use cooking oil hydro-treating, making renewable diesel, SAF, or renewable propane. And by the way, our carbon intensities, which we don't, we can talk, I, I tend to be very quantitative. It's funny, I've just finished a week with Europeans, and they're much more qualitative. We make this blend of uh, fuels, where I find in the U.S., I look at the carbon intensity of the grid today. We study it intensely, the carbon intensity of the grid by states the carbon intensity of conventional fuels like regular natural gas, regular propane, and then the carbon intensity of these products. But that pathway that I just talked about, generally at the uh, output, carbon intensity is 10, 11, 12. Uh, and then we, if we move it across the country, the carbon intensity is much higher. If you move it next door, the carbon intensity already shifts, right? That one pathway is exciting. If I kind of, I would, let me just go to the next pathway because it's exciting that as we sit here this month, the plant is opening, products being sent away from the plant, is using a non-food cover crop, camelina plant. Been around farming most of my life, never heard of camelina plant. Turns out genetically modified through the University of uh, Minnesota grows well almost across this country and is being grown right now as we speak through the kind of the grasslands of Montana, Wyoming particularly, but it rotates in with farmers, other crops. So 89 days, give or take the germination, it flowers and pollinates. It provides all this beautiful honeybee habitat for those 90 days. And then farmers combine it just like they would combine wheat or beans and it produces a seed. 
That seed is crushed into an oil, and that oil just jumps, basically, into renewable propane. And, uh, you know, a really innovative company today is starting to produce that after years of research and work and getting seeds into the farmer's hands. But now we're starting to see product at the plant. So that's renewable propane from really the farmer's hands without impacting the food supply or even the conditions of the soil, really one one bit. That's the exciting story for us as we think about this transition to new fuels, and in this case, to new liquid fuels. The carbon intensity of that today is about seven. So again, the carbon intensity of propane is about 80. Natural gas, about the same. Carbon intensity of the electric grid across this country is 150. And so you think about basically conventional natural gas, conventional propane are almost twice as beneficial to the climate as electricity today, right? As we think a little bit into the future, though, you got to believe, well, the grid's got to get better, less coal, more natural gas, eventually more wind, more solar, maybe more nuclear. So here we are talking about a renewable fuel that has a carbon intensity of seven on its way to zero, by the way. No fuel can compete with that kind of uh, benefit to the climate. It's exciting. It is exciting. And I, I think what also excites me, you know, is what that really means for the farmer. And um, we've seen a lot of uh, farmers, particularly dairy farmers, hog farmers, really benefit from the explosion of the renewable gas industry across this country. But I think what you're talking about, <clears throat> rotating, you know, energy dense, hopefully is the right term, cover crops into their operations that probably have other benefits for the environment. You mentioned honeybees, soil health, uh, and then now, you know, being able to benefit monetarily from from planting and harvesting those cover crops. I think that is just really, really exciting and, uh, you know, is really a, a potential gold rush, if you will, for for rural communities across this country and farmers across this country who, you know, let's face it, um, you, you know, need more ways to diversify their income and their revenues. And um, I think that's just fascinating and, and really a neat pathway to be learning about. Uh, I did not know what a camelina plant was either. Uh, so appreciate you educating me about that. And, and what an exciting time uh, for your industry and frankly, you know, for the country. So um, talk a little bit about kind of market adoption, if you will. What percentage of the propane market is currently renewable? Well, I think the current percentage is certainly less than 1%. Right. I mean, in fact, I think if you really did the math and you were honest about it, we're probably somewhere between a half to three quarters of a percent. And that doesn't I mean, it one, it doesn't surprise me. And nor two, does it diminish me? One, I'm never an apologist for these conventional fuels, propane or natural gas, when they're already so much cleaner than the electric grid. And most people say the only path to a clean climate is to use more electricity. I'm like, no, the only path to a clean climate right now is to use less electricity, use more natural gas, use more propane. But as we really think about the future, you know, we're just in this now kind of chicken and egg scenario where people, and I'm just fresh from working with the likes of Walmart, UPS, and a few others, 
you know, as we're really looking at what are the true alternatives to diesel and gasoline, and we know we're there. And the good news is we, with plants already on the books, already financed, you know, welders welding and gravel and concrete being poured, we know we'll be at something well north of 100 million gallons by the end of next year. We see a pathway well north of a billion gallons uh, by 2040 as we sit here. And we've we got some really exciting projects on the book. So I think we're certainly less than 1% now. I expect within the next couple of years, we'll be at 2%. But, you know, as you well know, David, from your work with RNG, it's really driven by kind of three things. One, consumer awareness, being willing to ask about it or being or listening to being told about it. But it's also around the financial incentives that are out there for producers to produce it, right? We have we have the RINs credit. So people that make renewable propane get those D5 RINs. But we're chasing really right now low-carbon fuel standards. So that means a D5 RINs is only available for transportation. Uh, those low-carbon fuel standards generally then double that up. So it really means most of this product is going into California, north up to Washington State. Now, I'll be in a couple of weeks in Maine sharing, you know, a school bus fleet using renewable propane. I've done that in Connecticut. Awesome. I've done that in Virginia. Um, but historically, right now, we're just really focused in that Pacific Northwest in California. But I think you look forward five years, 10 years, we fully see where maybe transportation demand, maybe power demand, and uber environmentally conscious companies, I think, UPS is kind of the pinnacle of that, but a lot of well-meaning companies that really want to elevate their status in this environmental conversation, they'll start choosing it, whether or not the incentives are there for them. So regarding the LCFS market specifically, <clears throat> are you pipeline transporting the gas, the, the renewable propane, or is it all going via truck? Today, we generally rail and truck. We wouldn't, okay. we wouldn't be prohibited from pipelining. And the beauty of it is, as we think about other renewable fuels that aren't renewable propane, which may, you know, create some kind of an issue for either codes or standards or fuel quality, renewable propane and propane are perfect. Are they the same fuel? They have very different birth, very different birthplace, very different mm -hmm. carbon, but they're the same fuel. So we can commingle it. And I, I, we're really working on doing a bit more of that. But today it's almost been exclusively segregated truck, segregated rail, segregated tank at the customer. Uh, far different than you're used to with RNG or even people that trade renewable power. Yeah. And so uh, kind of going one step further, because you mentioned earlier the carbon intensity score and that once you start you know, sending it across across the country, of course, the carbon intensity score uh, goes up, right? Higher is more intense, lower is less. How geographically, I guess, prohibited are you by using truck and rail at this time? I mean, or put a different way, maybe simpler for um, some of our listeners and viewers, what's the furthest place that you see renewable propane being produced and then railed into the LCFS market? 
Well, I mean, in some cases, we've been moving at 1,500 miles through rail. Okay. Um, yep. Even the Camelina weed I talk about, that oil has been now innovative to me, really shipped through uh, focused trains. Uh, and the view is that these trains will eventually run on that same Camelina plant turned into perhaps biodiesel, right? But There you go. Um, we're, we're moving it today. I mean, this plant I'm talking about, I'll be in northern Maine. That that particular fuel started its life in Louisiana as from a Chevron facility. Okay. I mean, sadly, yeah. most of these facilities today are, are in that traditional refinery patch, if you would. Mm-hmm. Louisiana for a degree. We see Houston coming on. Bakersfield, California. Um, where these existing refineries were and are now being converted to be bio refineries. Interesting. Okay, so we've sort of touched on this um, as we've gone through the episode. And I think this is a really important topic, particularly um, as, you know, we, we don't get political on the show, but um, today, you know, all the focus from the government and, and a lot of the consumer, I think, awareness is around electric vehicles. And um, you, you, I like the way you said, you know, you know, we have to use less electricity to be better for the environment than more. Talk about the future of transportation. I mean, I, I think everyone who listens to this show, whether you're in the industry or not, is very familiar with electric vehicles and electric vehicle incentives, um, you know. And I'm, I'm of course thinking more on the consumer side when I mention that. But what does the future of transportation look like to you? Um, and and talk a little bit about why maybe it's not just electric vehicles. I'm always looking at your face to see if you're baiting me or whatever, but because um, uh, I, I have such a strong view. My view, by the way, isn't shaped by politics. I think, you know, the, the concern I consistently have here is that the average consumer, the person who wants to do their job and to have a meal with their family at night and read the paper, they don't really get the full story here. So I believe all forms of energy will be here a long time. By the way, for me, I'll even say sadly to a degree, diesel and gasoline will be around a long time. But if we yeah. really think about transportation, that's what you asked me to talk about. I don't know, very few people, I'll leave it at that, and even fewer people who are willing to talk about it, have any comprehension of the difference between a light-duty passenger car that drives, I don't know, let's be kind, 7,000 miles a year, stays in their neighborhood versus a truck trying to go five, 700 miles a day, pushing 80,000 pounds. And even I, in the middle of all that confusion, am shocked at the difference in a battery in a Prius or, you know, you pick your light duty electric car. And by the way, the electric car industry wishes we didn't drive Suburbans and pickup trucks. They wishes we They wish we drove vehicles that weigh 2,500 pounds, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the chairman of Toyota even said it best. The battery materials or the minerals and, and that go into a battery, they're certainly going to be limited, right? We're going to be limited by manganese, cobalt, lithium, what all copper, all of that. And he goes, would you rather have 
one truck or 90 Priuses, because that's the difference. The same amount of minerals that goes into one truck could be the battery minerals that provide it for 90 Priuses. So I'll tend to, I tend to stay out of this conversation about what you and I drive because at some level, I don't know that it matters. It matters immensely what UPS and FedEx and Covenant Transport and every mm -hmm. other trucking company that are trying to think about how to move goods and services all over this country and do it reliably and quickly and cheaply. They're not going to be able to rely on battery electric vehicles. It's wonderful that companies make these, you know, flashy purchase orders. I'll buy 50 tractors to, you know, run uh, beverages 37 miles to the plant. But we're, we're not in a place where heavy duty loads at high temperatures or low temperatures, for that matter, can move uh, the goods they need to move, the distances they move. That is going to be... It's going to remain for diesel and gasoline until someone else provides a better alternative. And it's going to be a liquid fuel. It's going to be a liquid fuel. Now, what do I think happens in 50 years? I don't really profess to know that, right? We talk often about natural gas and propane can be a bridge. I would say, yes, that's a fair statement, but it's a long bridge. I'm not even sure that I see the end of that bridge because I'm sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that cobalt, lithium, manganese, copper, all of those minerals that go into batteries are are limited in how we get them. And as Americans, we're not going to allow some of that mining and waste of the land and waste of the water that we see today in Chile, that we see today in Africa, where the, we see, you know, in parts of Asia where these minerals and are mined and processed. We're not going to allow that to happen to our country. We're just not. Um, you're not going to have it in your backyard. I'm not going to have it in my backyard. And it shouldn't be allowed in our backyard. So this, this story of electrification of the transportation sector, it's not really the complete story. Yes. I mean, we, we all get excited. Light-duty passenger vehicles may have exceeded now about 10% of purchases, driven heavily by incentives. But let's don't kid ourselves. The rank-and-file person keeps a gasoline car in their garage as well for their trips. Um but as we really think about transportation and commercial and mainly commercial transportation, it, we're just not there for battery electric. We're not there for hydrogen. Um, and they're going to rely. In fact, let's be real. This is another place where propane and natural gas have this lovely relationship. Natural gas has been the fuel of the class eight truck. Um, the systems are in place. It, it's good for the environment. It meets the duty cycle of that class eight truck. Propane has been really smaller than that class six, seven, eight. And I think, I think that's where both just coming into our own on that. I mean, I spend so much time, not only in the halls of DOE, but really with Cummins and universities and writers and mechanical engineers thinking about this on a global perspective. And I'm sure that our view is more correct than incorrect, that these has to be a modern engine, efficient engine with a efficient liquid fuel or an efficient renewable fuel like renewable propane or renewable natural gas. That's the future for decades and decades. And by the way, it'll be better for all of us. It'll be better for the earth, better for the climate, better for our health. You know, we don't ever spend enough time talking about the health effects of diesel and gasoline. Hmm. 
And then lastly, better for us as consumers because we can afford the cost of transportation for these goods and services that need to move across the country. Well, this has been a fascinating, fascinating conversation. I, I, I tend to agree with you. I've heard you mention that, you know, say we need a wide pathway to decarbonization. And and I think you've sort of explained that here as throughout this conversation. Um, certainly, if you want to expound upon what that means to you, I'd love to hear it. But But I tend to agree with you. You know, I think we need to look at this as an all the above approach and we need to take every resource we can get and and be smart about um how we adopt and and what what technologies you know you for me and again not being political but but you hate to see um winners and losers there of course are going to be winners and losers but it's got to make sense it's got to make sense for the long term um and and I'm really fascinated by what you're doing in your organization. I've really enjoyed getting to know you Tucker and listening to your podcasts. Uh if anybody or any of the podcast junkies that are listening in here, uh definitely get on there and listen to Tucker's podcast Path to Zero. A lot of great episodes and and more episodes coming. Tucker, any closing thoughts here as we kind of wrap up? No, I just love this. This is the kind of dialogue we love to have, right? To kind of broaden all of our thinking. And because at the end of the day, we're doing this to have a stronger globe, right? A stronger climate, but we got to do it with better health and we have to be able to afford the solutions. And I think those are the kind of conversations I love having. David, I like to say thanks for having me today. Absolutely. Tell our listeners and viewers real quick, how can they find you online and follow along with what you're doing? Well, we work really hard to put a lot of good information at propane.com, just a place. Um, and there's an environmental tab in there that's just, it's a great place to learn more about this. And then I do hope people may search out Path to Zero and listen to that a bit because it's a great conversation. And it's not always pro-propane. It's very much, you know, true energy, uh, the energy story, the energy picture. Absolutely. Well, we will put links to both of those in the show notes so that everyone has easy access to those. Before we wrap up, as always, huge thank you to our listeners and viewers who continue to tune into these episodes. Uh, We couldn't do what we do if it weren't for you. And a huge thank you to Tucker Perkins, the president and CEO of the Propane Education and Research Council. Perk, uh, really appreciate you making the time to come on the show I'm your host, David Smart, Chief Commercial Officer at Biostar Renewables, and this has been another episode of Renewables. Tucker, thanks again, and we'll be in touch, and and hopefully you'll come back uh, in season four maybe and and talk about some of the, the further advances of renewable propane. We would really love to have you back. Look forward to it. Thanks, David. Thank you. Hello, and thank you for listening to Renewables, a podcast by Biostar, which aims to explore the current and future energy landscape in America. 